0: There's a memory that has actually popped up for me recently, and it was a weekend. I I can't even recall what time of year it was, but I remember I went back to visit my parents on the farm outside of Wallace, Nebraska, and for whatever reason, we were looking through the channels trying to find something to watch that evening. And we stumbled across, on the We Channel, the Mrs. America pageant. And I remember turning to actually both my parents at the time. And I said, see, this is the thing I've been looking into. And I had been looking into it for the past, maybe six months at that time to compete at Mrs. Colorado. But I had not yet witnessed or even watched any part of the Mrs. America pageant, which I knew was nationally televised at the time, which made it even more appealing for me to compete at Mrs. Colorado. But here it was for whatever reason. And I remember watching the entire pageant and watching Mrs. Alabama, Julie Love Templeton win Mrs. America that year. Which is really endearing as I look back on it now because she and I are very good friends. But at the time I was just I was watching this woman win. And I remember when she answered her final question, I, I don't think there was any doubt in anyone's mind as to who was winning that night, because this was a woman who was not only articulate, but she knew exactly what she wanted to say. And the extra appeal for me when watching Julie was she was an educated woman. She was an attorney. At that time, I had already graduated with my master's degree. You know, she was a working woman. There, there were so many things that I just without knowing her, admired about her. And I thought, you know what? I think this is the tipping point. I think this is what's going to have me sign up. And I did. And I competed uh, at Mrs. Colorado in 2005. I, I went into it. I mean, I had had a baby less than nine months prior to that. So I think at the time when I competed at Mrs. Colorado, it was like, if I can just feel good about myself competing in a swimsuit in a beautiful gown and do all this, I'll just be ecstatic. Like that was my motivation for going into it. And because I had competed in, um, Miss Nebraska teen USA before and Miss teen USA, it was like, Oh, this would be something I at least would know how to do. And that year I remember being, it was kind of a mix of emotion, actually, because it, at the end of it, I had won most photogenic, which came with a modeling scholarship. And, I won best in interview out of all the contestants, but I finished second runner up. And so there was a little part of me, the competitive side of me that was like, how can I do that well and still not win this? <laughs> but then there was like the reality part of me of, well, is, is this everything that I could do? And so once I you know sort of went through everything and thought, well, logistically, there's some things I can do differently. I can do better for the next time. So I decided, okay, I can fix those things. But if I was to go back a second year and compete, I felt like there needed to be something more compelling. And something that had really started to come up for me, not because of a pageant, but because I was passionate about it, was the fact that when I was going through graduate school, I remember working at a bar and grill five nights a week. I was able to get a graduate assistantship on campus that later on finally helped me with tuition, but really didn't pay me a whole lot. The reason why you do those things is not because you're going to be making tons of money. It's more for the experience on campus and the fact that you have the opportunity to get tuition covered. But I mean, those are all things that I had to seek out very intentionally. But when I looked back on it, there just wasn't There wasn't scholarship. There wasn't a lot of financial aid available to women. Couple that with the fact that prior to working on campus, when I was going through my own grad program, I had taken a job at a few different proprietary schools who were looking for recruiters. And so someone with my background, you know, I was my undergrads in secondary education. I was a student myself. I had a a nice background to try to recruit other students into these programs but what I saw time and time again even at these programs was this really interesting intersection if you will between those who were eligible for financial aid and those who weren't there still weren't any scholarships available necessarily it was mostly financial aid for those but it was really interesting. And it all came to a very specific point in time when I met a woman named Julie. I, I will never forget it. She, she came in. She was a bank teller at the time. Her husband was a construction worker. She had taken the entrance exam for this proprietary school and had almost aced it. So she was she was stellar. She was stellar on paper. She was great to interview. And I remember sitting with her And she'd come back from financial aid, and this is what had happened. She was more than enough on paper as a student to be able to qualify. But she and her husband made just enough money that she couldn't get financial aid. Yet when they looked at their incomes, they didn't have enough money for her to really go to school. And I remember... That story just kept sticking with me and I kept thinking there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a way for women to get scholarships who are seeking higher education. I myself went through this and couldn't really find anything. I had to figure out different means. Here's this, Now here's this woman in front of me in my own office and she's not able to do it. And this is a woman who needs to continue pursuing. This woman can go on and do incredible things. And so when I was trying to figure out what am I... If I go back and compete for Mrs. Colorado, it can't just be about, you know, now that I'm back in shape or that I feel good about myself. It, it can't be those things. It has to be that I've got something else to. And by the way, I'm gonna, I am going to to go off on a soapbox here really quickly because I want to make almost a disclaimer here. People believe that women competing in pageants have to have some sort of platform to speak about Other than the Miss America pageant, which does require that every contestant has a platform that they talk about, there really isn't any requirement. But I will say this, in the last probably two decades, there have been a lot of almost usage of that. Like my platform is this, or I compete, and this is what I talk about. And what I will say is this, while it's not required, I think especially as you move into married pageants... Women are more involved in the community. I I mean, adult women tend to be even more involved in the community. So it makes sense that when they go to compete, they talk about something that they're passionate about. So there's enough of my soapbox. You don't have to have a platform. It doesn't have to be that, you know, black and white here. But when I decided to come back on the second year and compete at Mrs. Colorado, I thought, you know what? I need to think about if I win, what would I actually want to talk about? And I kept coming back to that place. I watched Julie Love Templeton win. She was an educated woman. I'm an educated woman. I see that there's struggles out there for women to go and pursue degrees. And I thought to myself, you know what? Whether I win or not, I am going to do something. I am going to start raising money for this. I am going to start giving scholarships. And so when I went back a second time and competed at Mrs. Colorado, I did talk to the judges about it. I said, I haven't started it yet. And whether you crown me Mrs. Colorado or not, I am going to start A foundation and start raising money to be able to provide scholarships at the end of that evening I did win mrs. Colorado and I did start that foundation and even years after being a pageant winner even after um being mrs. America I still continued to raise money for that because I was super passionate about it now the reason why I share this with you is because if you go to the pageant and you watch the night of the show you will see women on stage You will have opinions about them, but you won't really know them. And the judges, too, maybe get an extra four minutes with each of them to get to know them and interview, and then that becomes they get to know these women a little bit more. But the general public doesn't really get to know what is going on in a particular woman's life unless you get a chance really just to speak with them. And then, of course, if they win the title and they're willing to talk about it, then you really get to see who these women are. And I felt like I got such an awesome opportunity doing that when I was Mrs. Colorado and Mrs. America. To be able to hear those stories of future women when they have them is incredible. And I had the opportunity to sit down recently with Mrs. Colorado 2023, Danny Holiday. She too is beautiful. She is articulate. She has lived an incredible life, and she has some really incredible stories, and she has passions that she speaks about, and you wouldn't necessarily know all of those, and you wouldn't know the details of those unless you maybe get a chance to listen to a conversation with her like this, but I remember, you know, Danny, like myself, had to compete more than once at Mrs. Colorado. She's a former competitive athlete like myself and sometimes that's a little bit of a gut-wrenching experience when you don't win, when you're used to winning. (laughs) And yet she came back and what I believe she is now doing as Mrs. Colorado and now she has the opportunity as she goes into the national competition to do it as Mrs. America is to talk about a, a number of things that she's passionate about shares her story very authentically about where she came from competitive athletes and a, and a turning point in her life around that, but also what she faces in what is, she considers a non-traditional marriage and relationship, which, you know, as I've gotten to know Danny even more, it's probably that no one has a traditional marriage to tell you the truth. And I love the fact that she's highlighting it. So I'm excited for you to hear her story. I'm excited to to just share with all of you that there's always something beyond just what you see at a surface level here. And so, to share with you is my conversation with Danny Holiday. Well, thank you, Danny, for joining me on my you. podcast. It's so cool to have you in studio because you and I have got I a it. chance to get to know each other over the last year. Mm-hmm. Although I feel like. I was maybe stalking you since you decided to compete in Mrs. Colorado. I mean, vice versa. <laughs> Let's just be honest. But here's what I have really enjoyed over the last year of getting to know you. And this is what is why I wanted to have you on the show. When somebody competes at Mrs. Colorado, you get to see this, especially for the people that are actually the audience members, they get to see this person on stage for a very limited amount of time. You get to hear somebody at the very end of the show usually be able to say something if that, if they make the top five. And if they're in the interview room, the judges, they get to have an extra four minutes with you. But most of the time, people don't really get this sort of behind the scenes view. Well, and a lot goes into it. <laughs> it's so funny that I know that when people are following you online right now, they're seeing that you're the new Mrs. Colorado 2023, but mm-hmm. I don't even – I mean, I don't really think of you that way right now because I get to know you as a person. So that's oh, what I'm hoping we can get you. into mm-hmm. today.
1: I, I would love to share it. Yeah. Yes.
0: And you – I think as as you and I got to know each other, I thought about this piece, which is you know that you when you go to speak to groups, mm-hmm. you have some pretty substantial – events, things that you navigated in your life. And I thought, you know, one of the things for us to maybe get into, because maybe people don't get to hear the full story around all of that, is you were a competitive athlete growing up Mm -hmm. and you were faced with some significant injuries, which led to something else that you had to navigate. So I just wonder Mm -hmm. if you can just start out just, just talking a little bit about that sort of athletic journey, and and we can just kind of get into the conversation from there.
1: Sure. Gymnastics was my life, and I will probably get emotional. Like, I'm already getting emotional because mm-hmm. it was such a big part of my life. I started gymnastics when I was three. I remember going in, and my mom dropped me off with my brother, and I just cried my eyes out. I didn't want to go. But my brother and I were, like, inseparable at the gym, and I just blossomed from there. It was truly something that I looked forward to doing every single day. And I don't know why, right? Like, it's just a little bug that gets put in your heart, I guess. And year after year, I continued to grow in the gym. And by the time I was middle school, I was competing nationally. I remember my parents sending me to Florida, California, Oklahoma, multiple areas in a given year and when you're 12 13 like you just think your body is indestructible and it was pretty much I remember you know you would run down the fault runway and just do a timer onto your back and you just literally fall on your back and you're like okay this is cool whatever or you balk on a scale and land on your knees no big deal Until your body starts, like your bones start to form a a little bit more, I guess. And then all of a sudden you have ligaments that are torn because you hold on to the bars too long. Or you twist an ankle from a jump and there's more ligaments that are torn there. But gymnastics was literally my everything. So I just continued to work through it, continued to work through it. And then when I was 15, I couldn't work through it anymore. I literally... I had torn ligaments in my shoulder and I couldn't raise my arm. They were so bad. And so that was my first surgery, was at the age of 15. And after that, it kind of just seemed like a snowball effect. Everything was starting to catch up with me. So shoulder and then the next year it was my knee. I tore my meniscus. And then shortly after that, my back started to go out on me. I have scoliosis and spondylothesis. So everyone knows what scoliosis is pretty much. It's the curvature of your back, like an S. But spondylothesis is where your back overarches. And so as a gymnast, all you're trying to do is be as limber as possible and bend as much as possible. And so with that, my vertebrae started to slip forward because I was overarching my back and I was pounding my vertebrae so hard. And so when I was 17, I literally remember running down the vault runway, I jumped on the board, and I just felt something crush in my back. And it was my vertebrae had slipped forward and tore up all of my nerves. And I was practically paralyzed as the days went on. I would wake up in the morning and I couldn't move, but it was something that we had always dealt with my whole life. And when I say we, my parents and I, because of the scoliosis, you always have like a pulled nerve in your back or a pinched nerve or whatever. So I just worked through it. And we worked through it. And then finally it got to the point where literally on one day I, I would go work out or lift weights every Monday, Wednesday, Friday with my dad. 5 a.m. We would go to our (laughs) high school gym. He was the high school football coach. So I would be in the gym with, you know, probably a dozen of the high school football guys, and I would be over there lifting with them. So I woke up one morning, and I went to go stand, and I couldn't stand. Literally just fell to the floor. Screamed, and my mom came in, and we didn't know what to do. So we found a doctor, and from there on, he actually took my case up to a board because I was 17 and he didn't know what to do. He didn't also know what to do. Like, do I fuse her whole back? Do I fix the problem now? And then we figure out what happens later on. And so in literally the blink of an eye gymnastics was taken from me. And when that's all you've ever known Mm -hmm. and you're 17, 18, you think you're invincible you just keep going on with life, and that's what I did. I never mm-hmm. dealt with the, oh, my gosh, gymnastics was taken from me. What do I do in life now? And it wasn't until, you know, I went off to college, and I thought I was going to be a collegiate gymnast. That's all I wanted. I never wanted to be in the Olympics. That wasn't my thing. I wanted to be in college gymnastics. My brother went on, and he was a college baseball athlete and I didn't get my dream and I was watching him live his dream and stuff started to like snowball and not only mentally all of that I was still going through more surgeries Marnie I had 11 surgeries in 13 years from the effects of gymnastics tearing up my body and we all know that after surgery you're prescribed these little pills, right, to say, hey, every four to six hours, if you're in pain, go ahead and take these. Well, I was having surgery every year. I was never getting off of these pills. And I just told myself I was constantly in pain. So I constantly needed these pills. And I quickly became addicted, not knowing I was, definitely not knowing. My family didn't know. I don't think that we were aware enough to know the effects mentally, physically, and emotionally of what an opioid addiction does to people.
0: Right. I mean, at what point – I thought about this too because, you know, I know the the background, you and I have talked about what all the journey was to get to that point, point. Mm-hmm. and this was the question that finally hit me, which was do you recall a point where you were making a decision to take – and it may not even have been a point in time, but as you were, you know, not knowing what to, to do, your parents didn't know what to do, you guys had never been in this situation. Do you remember some times where you were like, I know I'm not in pain, but I'm still taking it because I want this high or I want this mm-hmm. feeling?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For me, it was, it wasn't a high. I didn't know I was, it was, I guess it was my comfort. I don't know, mm-hmm. it was putting me in this place where I was just able to float through life. I guess is the best mm-hmm. way that I can say it. But it was <laughs> it was becoming a bonus parent. It was my was my turning point or my breaking point, however you want to say it.
0: And can I ask this? Yes. At that point before you became when that different part of your life where you became a bonus mm-hmm. parent, how long had you been taking opioids?
1: So, I started taking opioids when I was 15, and I met Andre when I was 26, and I okay. had my last surgery when I was 28. Okay. So, mm-hmm. that time frame in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and Again, you don't realize what you're doing. You don't realize who you are. But I knew that I was an angry person. I knew that I like something wasn't right in me. You know, we say that there's functioning, functioning alcoholics. I think I was a functioning dependent because mm-hmm. I didn't know what was going on. So to answer your your, your breaking points, question. I gave myself one time after my last surgery, I was fully recovered. I was probably eight weeks post, post-surgery. I am recovered by that time. But I remember sitting on the couch and Charlie, the youngest um, daughter, she was in middle school. It was, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon. Andre had asked me to go pick her up from school that day. Three o'clock hit, And it was at the same time where it was that four to six hour window where I could take another pill. And I remember looking at the clock, looking at my pill bottle and wanting to take that pill bottle. But then I was like, oh, my gosh, I need to go pick up Charlie. Everyone knows you're not supposed to take a pill and go try it at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so that was my breaking point. I could not be this person that needed to be out here for somebody else and give my best possible person that I could be to these, you know, children while taking these pills. And -hmm. it was just my breaking point. After that, my husband and I, we strongly believe in couples counseling. We took it to counseling because it was something I shared with Andre that night. We took it to counseling the next time we were in. And my counselor had recommended the book, um, When the Body Says No. It's all about mindset. And sometimes... Your body can be physically hurting. That chronic pain can be in you, but it's not actually in you. It's all in your mind. And as you start working through, like, you know, doing the mirror exercise and telling yourself how beautiful you are, your, your body is amazing, what it's doing for you, you can slowly start to change that story, change those chapters of what you're feeling emotionally and physically. And I, I bought into it. 100% I bought into it. And I started doing that religiously in my life. And that was my ability to break free from an opioid dependency. Right. So it wasn't this big aha moment. I threw them down the toilet or anything like right. that. <laughs> but even today, if I am hurting, I'm like, I'm not going to touch those. Right. I might want to, but I'm not going to touch them.
0: I want to ask you, I want to go into a different part here. Well, first of all, we could probably go down another path of even talking about like the value of counseling and Mm -hmm. actually working through this and having someone with you potentially. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many people are, you know... I don't, I don't have the research. I don't have the stats on how many people end up doing this alone, how many people end up doing it through therapy, how many people have that sort of epiphany, like that monumental moment when they throw them all down the toilet or they, they realize, like, something really horrific happened and that's what made me. I mean, you, you don't necessarily have all those pieces. But it, it, during your course with, like, counseling, though, did it ever come back to the – why you were taking them. I mean, I wonder too, like, when you share the story around, like you'd always saw yourself as an athlete, mm-hmm. that was a big piece for me too. Mm-hmm. And that, and I've had to navigate that in other ways. In some cases, I don't know that I've actually completely gotten over it because mm-hmm. that was such a, a role that I played in my life. But have you uncovered that piece of it, of how much of it was sort of potentially suppressing the fact that you – could no longer compete in gymnastics? Mm -hmm. Was it something else? Like where did you, what did you Mm -hmm. learn around that?
1: I learned that sometimes I feel like I need something in my life to be. And I think I transitioned from being a gymnast to being an operating patient. And Mm -hmm. so I became this gymnast to my friends, my family to this person that was just in and out of the hospital. And that's that was, I don't know, I don't know how to say it, but that is who I became.
0: Right.
1: And when that's all you know and that becomes your story and you're sitting across the table from somebody and they ask, how's your day or what's new in your life? Oh, I have an operation tomorrow. Or, mm-hmm. you know, right. you kind of become that victim in your own life and it's this snowball And so sometimes I look back and I'm like, did I really need that bunion surgery or was it the chronic pain that my mind was telling me, you know, there's something else wrong with you. Right. Um, And I remember, I remember sometimes going into the doctor and I would have this chronic pain and I would start getting anxiety and say, but what if he doesn't find anything wrong with me?
0: Oh, wow.
1: And... I would have like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be here for no reason. And there there was always something wrong. But that little bug in you to say, what if he doesn't find something wrong? That's when I started realizing, okay, what's going on here, right? And it's actually maybe we've talked about it in counseling, but it's something that I've reflected on in myself. And so now I'm like, okay. I twisted an ankle. I'm fine. Right. <laughs> I'm fine. Right. I don't need to go to the doctor. I'm fine. But yeah, I think that is kind of who I became.
0: Hmm. I mean, I think about when you're sharing that, I think about people that, you know, maybe people go down the path of that there's, there's something wrong or that's not working for me or something doesn't work out. I mean, I know that there's different. It's interesting because I almost relate it to what you were describing, which is you were well, what if they don't find something wrong? Then what's my next story to tell, or what's the next surgery that I get to talk about with other people? It became it became who you were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It definitely did. It's a big piece of it. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, you know, the reason why I thought it was such an important piece to talk about is because they say that in someone's life, whether it's themselves, a partner, a child, a parent, a friend, a colleague, they're you're, in some way, shape, or form. We're all. We all have some sort of relationship with opioid addiction. It's We know somebody, mm-hmm. but yet mm-hmm. we may not know who they are. So mm-hmm. that's where I think this is incredibly important. So I just wonder, like, again, I know that you share your own story openly and willingly, and not everybody has probably even heard the depth of detail you just described, if they've maybe only seen some posts or some things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what... What would your, I mean, what do you advise people in doing around this? How can they support someone that's in this? I mean, Mm -hmm. can they support somebody Mm -hmm. that's in this or is it for that person to figure out? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm.
1: Just from my own personal experience, I am not a therapist or anything in this sense. And there actually are. So the more research has come out with opioids – they are understanding that it is a, a chemical trigger in your brain that tells you you need these, and that it's creating this this chronic pain in your body. And so, there is actually um, becoming recommended therapy for chronic chronic pain patients to start going to to work through an opioid addiction. So that I love that that's starting to come out because that's another path. As you know, the opioid pandemic has escalated to the amount that it has, now it's on the, okay, how can we, what have we learned from this and help people through? But from my own personal experience, I believe that you as an individual going through it, only you can help bring yourself out. And I say that because in my experience, if somebody were to come to me, I would have been super defensive. Mm. I'm not I'm not dependent. I'm fine. You know, I go to work every day. I take care of a family. I'm an active person in my community. I was fine. But it wasn't until I had my, my breaking moment, my, you know, crossroads, when I understood that it was an issue. And so I truly believe that it's kind of one of those inside-out type things that you have to understand because if somebody comes to you, you're just going to feel like they're accusing you and become defensive. Right. That was my experience.
0: Well, and I I – first of all, I appreciate you saying like, hey, I'm not a therapist. This is what my experience is. I agree with you because there's there's only so much research when mm-hmm. – like I'm just – I uh, appreciate research. I appreciate understanding all those things. And so a lot of times when I'm with guests on this too, it's – well. Your experience is valuable. Let's talk Mm -hmm. about your experience around all of that. I also think it's probably important to mention here too that some people actually need probably something substantial to happen or they need to at least acknowledge like I need to go talk to a therapist Mm -hmm. because I'm recognizing I can't – maybe potentially I can't pull myself out of this or Mm -hmm. in some cases people need to actually go to rehab facilities or Mm -hmm. whatnot. And I'm a proponent of all those things, Mm -hmm. of whatever – needs to happen for people to be able to sort of find their way. Mm-hmm. What I really found interesting about your story though is that it could be so many other people's stories mm-hmm. and I think there's a couple things wrapped up I mean the athletic piece of it the identity piece of it and that just sort of hit me now for the first time when you were like now that that was, that was what I started to become I became a patient type thing mm-hmm. when you talk to people about this though mm-hmm. I guess what is the maybe the challenger for you to be in some cases now put up on a pedestal to talk about something, knowing that you have had your own battles with it? I mean, how do you how do you balance that when you're speaking with people?
1: To just say I'm a human just like everybody else, right? Like right. I've gone through my trials and tribulations. And if if what I've gone through can help one other person who might be going through it because maybe my speaking of my story might be their aha moment mm-hmm. that's all that matters and when i started pageantry i didn't know who i was i didn't know my platform or what i what i wanted to speak on and then after my first year when i went to go back for my second one our director emily she was like danny just start your journaling your life and who Mm -hmm. you are and what makes impacts for you. And that's where I really started to explore this um, part of me and my willingness to share it. And as I started speaking, whether it was on social media a little bit, but more or less to family and friends, that's when it became, okay, this is okay to speak about. It doesn't have to be hidden. And I might not feel like if I'm out there speaking of it, I don't, you know, sometimes when you want to share a story, you're scared of how it's going to be perceived. At the end of the day, I don't care how it's going to be perceived for me. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you look down on me because I went through this story. I'm not the only person going through this story. And I want to be with those other people going through their stories. I want to go there with them right? because it can be lonely. Right. And I know that. And so... I just want to be out there as a, another resource or shoulder for somebody
0: who's going through it too. Mm-hmm. But, but what I would say this, people listening, they may have – they're hearing now for sure like your story around it and they haven't yet potentially had the benefit that I have to hear all this and have one-on-ones mm-hmm. with you. And at the end of the day, it was like if she wins, she wins. Like – I knew you could have been Mrs. Colorado years ago. Like I always <laughs> thought that you would win no matter what, but but even if you hadn't this is actually super super important because I again I do. I believe it affects so many people. It actually the, again we know that it, it it affects all of us in some way, shape or form and I think it's super important that people start talking about it. Mm-hmm. What I want to shift in for this this next part though is um, I know there's something else that you also have had to navigate through, and these things are also kind of interconnected. So you've talked about your journey with infertility, Mm -hmm. and you've also talked about your journey with sort of non-traditional marriage and and family and what that looks like. I want to get into that, but I want to get into it in a lens of this, which is why speak out about it? Why what is that compelling reason that you actually want to talk about it? Because mm-hmm. I'm going to say this right now for anybody that's listening, thinking that the whole reason why somebody becomes Mrs. Colorado is to actually go speak about these things. It's, <laughs> no, it's, mm-hmm. it's it's whoever ends up having that may end up having something to speak about, but you actually do this anyway. Mm-hmm. And I want to make that super clear for everybody as to mm-hmm. that piece of it. But so what is it that's compelling for you to actually talk about these things?
1: Yeah, I think it starts with when my husband and I got together, we are, we are what can be deemed as non-traditional. We are an age difference couple. And if you want to know, it's 22 years, Mm -hmm. (laughs) 22 years age difference. Um, We're different races. I was a bonus mom and a grandma as soon as I entered Andre's life. And I'm, I'm thankful for it. But from the outside in, you had people that didn't understand it, whether that was friends or family. And we had a lot of battles, outside battles, that created internal battles, too, in our marriage, our relationship at that time. And so, again, why speak on it? Because... We might be deemed non-traditional to society, but we are becoming more of a normal family as you start, you know, talking with other families, whether it's a blended family or a third, second marriage, whatever it might be. When society sees you from the outside and they don't see, oh, I didn't picture her marrying him. What? Well, who's to paint that picture? Right. Right? Gosh. I mean, I'm to paint my own picture. Mm-hmm. You're not to paint my picture for me. And I come from a very traditional family. And so that was hard. And Andre helped me understand that I paint my own picture. No one's going to paint it for us. And we are comfortable. We have this bond that was a friendship for five years before we got together. And so what evolved in, in our relationship, that's for us to know. And you don't have to understand it from the outside, but respect it. And so it was these, you know, these conversations that we would have. And if the conversations didn't go well, you, you have to start setting up
0: some boundaries sometimes. Can I ask you what was the most shocking thing that ever happened to you? around whether it was the age difference, the race difference. What I what was the most shocking thing that's ever sort of hit you?
1: Not to go political, but part of our relationship and a lot of my growth has been from you know, I'm white, my husband is black, going through the difference of races mm-hmm. and how we're perceived in society. How we're acknowledged in society and so we've had a few run-ins where you could just definitely feel like it was a racial
0: thing do you have you noticed somewhere like either he was very specifically being judged but then in other instances where you were very specifically being judged
1: mm-hmm. yes I remember when we first started and it would we would go to dinner and I wouldn't understand it or it wouldn't be an issue with me, right? Like I didn't understand mar- marrying outside of your race was an issue. And then you would go to dinner, mm. and you would be sitting next to this couple, and you would kind of get the side eye the whole dinner.
0: Mm.
1: And your my husband would be like, "Well, here we go," right? <laughs> you know. And my husband is just that person that will make a friend any place that he goes, and he will turn to them and start making conversation with them. <laughs> <laughs> <And> so. <laughs> You know, to just break the boundaries because that's just who we want to live as, as a family. Um, And so it was a lot of growth in understanding racial trauma that comes with his, you know, his family, that comes with his past. Something that I've never had to go through Mm -hmm. in my life. And now that we have little AJ, who's two Something that he might have to go through or things that he's going to have to learn about as he grows up. And actually, we've had to talk to my parents. You know, my parents live two hours from us in a city that's not very racially diverse. Mm -hmm. So we've had to talk to them about what that looks like as, you know, they have AJ by themselves or anything like
0: that. What have you experienced with AJ when you're on your own? I'm just wondering around that. I mean, I know that... I mean I've heard of stories around women who now have a racially diverse child because of their marriage and so forth. Like what what do you like what have you had to experience with all of that? Cuz I do want to get to the place where let's talk about why it matters that you're talking about it and sort of what you do around that. But I do want to mm-hmm. explore that a little bit. Mm-hmm. What have you had to just within 2 years have mm-hmm. to navigate?
1: I think when you look at AJ you don't know that he's mixed, so some of the comments that I know some of my friends have gone through that you know they're in a mixed re- relationship marriage, and they have children. I've heard of very horrid stories that have been told to their child. For me, what it is, I love the com- I love this comment, and I say this sarcastically, but oh, when are you going to have another one? Mixed babies are so cute.
0: Wow! And I'm just
1: like oh. <laughs> Gosh, it just, it makes my skin crawl. So it just, why? Why do we have to say that in society? Right. Why should that even roll off somebody's tongue? Right. When are you going to have another one? Your baby is so cute. That's that's all you have to say.
0: Right. (laughs) It's such a reminder on so many things of probably lack of education, lack of understanding. Mm -hmm. I do know that you talk about this. We're not going to end up talking about the infertility piece. I think it would be great to have you back for us to actually record about that because I think that's really a big piece of this too. There's a lot of things. But if you were to – I don't ask the same question anymore of everybody, but this is the question that's hitting me for you. Mm -hmm. If if you were to go back – and rewrite like a script of anything. I'm not saying change anything because I don't I don't love that question around like would you change anything because most of us wouldn't, right? Because you're like, well, oh, that's landed me here. But if there's anything that you could fine-tune the script a little bit, is there anything of what you've navigated that you would have fine-tuned a little bit hmm. that could help somebody else maybe navigating it?
1: I think – for me, it's looking back in my 20s and not knowing who you are. Like I think 20s is a lot of exploration for everybody. And that's when I was really struggling with my opioid addiction. I was living my on my own in my 20s and just kind of bouncing through life, trying to find who I was. And then that's when Andre came into my life too. And for me... When somebody asks for guidance, let's say a 20-year-old female, I say, please, please go out and be able to get an apartment on your own, sit on that couch at least one night a week, and feel comfortable in your own skin. Because that, if you can do that and you can sit with your thoughts and you can dream and you can reflect you can become comfortable in your own skin, then anything that comes your way, you're going to be able to know the path that you want to go down. And others aren't going to be able to influence you. And for me, that's always the most important story that I try to share with other females. I, I think it's important for males too. But for me, having, you know, Charlie and Jazz and Morgan as bonus daughters, I, I feel just so inclined to be like, Girls, Mm -hmm. every girl, make sure that you can do this in your life, in your 20s, because that's, I think, the most reflective and kind of, I don't know, scary time of life.
0: Right. No, I think it's a great message because I think too many times as life progresses, that's where you and I have talked. It's like you get farther and farther, sometimes away from even who you were. And if Mm -hmm. you can really embrace who you are, the true self, I think that's incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. So I know people are going to want to follow you. And just sort of see your journey, not just as Mrs. Colorado, but they want to just sort of see what you're trekking and what stuff you follow. Where can they find you?
1: Yep. I am on Instagram, Mrs. Colorado 2023, or just Danny Holiday on Facebook.
0: Thank you for sharing the stuff that maybe necessarily you haven't shared otherwise. I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Make sure you follow and subscribe to get notified when the next episode gets released. For more great content and to connect with Marnie, head over to MarnieAndes.com.